Last week, we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And in that story, we see great grace. We see incredible miracles happening. And as Elizabeth said in the final um, text that we studied last week, we see that there was great kindness that God showed to them for she was no longer barren, which is really exciting. But, you know, there was a purpose to all of this, and it was to prepare the way for Jesus. I'm going to cough really quickly here. I'm going to turn off my microphone when I cough, so hang on. Ah, there we go. Perfect. Um, I, I do that as a courtesy for you. you know? But listen, the, the reason why we studied that last week is because the purpose for what they were doing is to prepare a way for the Son of God to come, was to prepare a way for Jesus. And if you know, if you're a parent, you know a little bit about that term called nesting. Have you heard about that? So um, nesting is when you've got to prepare a home and get it ready to go for your kid. Like when, when, I don't think men really do it as much as women, not to be, you know, stereotypical, but I think it's true. I think men, we put duct tape on our cabinets where there's poison and be good. Like we call it a day, I'm pretty sure. Women want to make it, want to make their house safe. They want to make it right. They want to make it perfect. My wife is very much like that. In fact, my wife's, my wife, um, she does all the decoration here. Her, along with Christine Painter, they do the lobby and they do the stuff. Yeah, yeah, amazing work. So she likes to have a place look right. And when we were expecting our first child, what we realized is um, we were not going to live in the house that we were living in by the time this child was born. We lived in San Diego and La Mesa, and um, we, we knew we were pregnant, but we also knew we were moving to um, this area because I had gotten a job at Loma Linda Academy to be their chaplain there. So we couldn't move until July. The, Hannah was due in August, and my wife was itching to nest. So by the time we moved up here, we moved to a house in Riverside, and brilliantly, we bought a house that was built in 1910, right? Because that's prepared for anything. And it was one of those homes where you walk in and you're like, oh, it seems like this could be a nice place. And you look at the carpet and you go, oh, that's a nice dark green. And then you take up, you know, something and you realize, oh, it was a light green when they put it in. So we got to get rid of that because we can't have a baby climbing around on that. So we pull it in beautiful hardwood floors. That was great. One bathroom. Just one. And in a hundred years, they hadn't thought that they should put in a shower. So yeah, so we had to tear this place apart. And we're doing this in the eighth and ninth month of her pregnancy. So we had torn the place up. And I remember one day, I think they were delivering a refrigerator or something. And my wife is on her hands and knees, nine months pregnant, tiling the kitchen. And these guys walk in and look at me like... And I looked at them like, would you like to stop her? Good luck. Because she was moving at that point. She wanted, she was nesting. She wanted to prepare the way for Hannah to come. And, and the story that we read last week is about preparing the way for Jesus. And we're going to jump into the story of Gabriel speaking to Mary today. But I want to do a little context. I want to talk about a little bit where the story came from. You see, we're going to be reading from the Lucan account from Luke. And this story is, um, many people, many of the scholars think that Luke actually spoke to Mary because of the way that she... Um, the way that he uses his language and the intimacy in which she talks about this conversation that she has with Gabriel. Um, but, but one thing to be clear, the idea of the virgin birth is built into this story right from the beginning, and it was a pre-Lucan concept. That means that 
the early Christians already had assented that this was a thing. Like this was real and this is what everyone understood to be the way that Jesus was born. That's really important for us to understand. The Vulgate, um, a little bit later, the Vulgate, the Latin translation, everyone uh, that, that we attribute to St. Jerome, um, he, he has the idea of virginity and the virgin birth being very prevalent in that translation. But to be sure, it is a concept that they already thought of. So we'll jump into the text. We're going to start in Luke 1, verse 26. We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. You can read from whatever translation you'd like, but if you read from the screens, it will be the New Living Translation. And it begins like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee. Now, this is the tie-in to the previous story, of course. And as you know, at the end of the story, they said as Elizabeth became pregnant, she went away for five months. So now she's back. She's in the sixth month. She is now back. And Gabriel is at work again. And we know Gabriel much more um, through the last story. But he, it begins like this. He came, well, she came to a virgin named Mary, who was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And um, lots going on here. Obviously, prophecies are being fulfilled. Nazareth's important. Um, Joseph, a descendant of King David, that's really important. That we'll jump into a little bit later. But let's do a little bit of work. Also, the name Mary, which means exalted one. Um, but, but let's do a little work around this idea of betrothal because that's relatively important. Where are my high schoolers at? You guys are usually sitting over there. Yeah. What are you guys, like 14, 15, 16, right around there? You're, nah, 18, man. Um, sorry. So, so here's the deal. When you, when you became 12 or 13, ladies, your parents would have betrothed you to one of these young gentlemen right there, right? So look around, take a look, see the one that you're interested in. No, don't do that. Um, but, but what would have happened at 12 or 13, you would have been betrothed. And at that point, you would have moved in to your future, your, your, your fiance's family's home. You would have moved in there and you would have lived there for a few years. Nothing weird would have gone on by any means, but because um, you're young, you're kids, you're little kids. But eventually when you're married and then life begins, that's what would have happened. So Mary was engaged to Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, as we know. Now we jump into the story where Gabriel shows up. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And if you ever heard, um, if you ever heard the Catholic Hail Mary, Hail Mary full of grace, it kind of comes from this region, this area of scripture, because we're talking about how, how she is full. She's favored by God. A lot of grace has been bestowed upon her, and, and eventually a lot of grace will be bestowed within her as well. Um, and I got a question for you today. Do you want to be favored by God? You don't seem really convinced. Do you want to be favored by God? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's such a good idea, right? Because we think that we think that being favored by God is great. And you've heard me say stuff like this before. We think that being favored by God is really great, but when God favors or chooses someone, life rarely gets easier for them. If God favors you or chooses you, here's the thing, he's got work for you to do as well. I do some I do some some independent contracting, some consulting and that sort of thing. And I love it when I get the contract, when I'm favored with the contract, man, that's awesome. It's so great because they like me and they want to hire me and that's awesome. And then the worst part comes, you know what that is? I got to do the work. <laughs> and I always overshoot what I am capable of doing. I think I'm awesome. And then I have to do the work and I'm like, I am not as great as I thought I was. 
See, because when God chooses you for something, he has a work for you to do as well. He never chooses you to sit. He never saves you to send, to have you sit. He always saves you to be sent. And so that's what's going on here. And, and, and Mary knows it because the very next verse says, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what this, what the angel could mean. So if you remember when Zechariah saw the angel, all he had was fear, right? Mary is a little brighter than um, Zechariah. I think. And also, she's immediately going, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. He just said he favored me, but something's about to change. Have you ever been on the precipice of change? Have you ever known, like, you know something's about to change in your life, like you're about to start a new job, you're about to lose the job that you have, and your mind starts to think through what all this means, and, and it goes to some pretty crazy places, doesn't it? It goes to some pretty dark places, it goes to some really, well, maybe this will be a good thing, and you're, you're doing, Mary's doing all of this in the middle of the conversation. She's like, what does this mean? Uh-oh, he chose me, he chose me for something, I wonder what the thing is, what is it that this could be? And remember, she's having to deal with the fact that she's now speaking to an angel. In, in Jewish society at the time, men rarely spoke to women, and angels never spoke to women. And so all of a sudden, an angel is speaking to her, and she's processing this all at the same time, and, and Gabriel kind of stops her reverie, and he says, listen, don't be afraid, because that's apparently what he has to say every single time he talks to somebody, right? Don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. You found favor with God, right? You found favor with God. And then he just goes right into it and he says, listen, this is what's about to happen. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You're going to name him Jesus. And he's matter of fact, just like with Zechariah. But the difference between this one and that one is that John is the opening act and Jesus is the main event. Like I used to play music and for a long time we were the opening act. And it was horrible being the opening act because you go into, there's a crowd, people are ready for the show that they paid for to see the people that they paid for and you are not it. And so you stand up and you're like, how you guys doing? How you doing, Toledo, Ohio? And they're like, who are you? And you're like, you don't know us, but you're not going to hate us as much by the end. Like, that's kind of how you go into it. And then later on, we were the main event, and we couldn't stand opening acts, even if they were great guys, because A, we wanted to go play, B, we knew the people wanted to hear us play, and C, an opening act can destroy it for you. Like, if, if people don't like the opening act, by the time you as the main event walk in, they may want to throw things at you just for choosing the opening act. We had the opening act, and now we have the main event. This is what's about to happen. And so Gabriel begins to explain how good the main event is going to be. He says, listen, he'll be very great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. So he's making, this, he's making this list, basically. And I don't think he was trying to convince Mary. He was trying to show Mary how incredibly important what was about to happen through her was going to be. And so he makes the list. If you've been going along with our series guide, you know what this list is because I pulled it directly from there, but we'll just break it down. The first thing he says is, well, he'll be great. He'll be great. He's not going to be okay. He's going to be somebody that you, like, it's overwhelming. He's not just going to be a good guy. He's going to be outstanding. He's going to be important. He's going to be a savior. He will be great on an epic and universal scale. God will show up in this guy. In fact, they will call him, this is number two, they will call him the son of the most high. This means he will be called the son of God, and he will be called the son of God while he's here on earth. They're not just going to miss it and then call him this later. They're going to recognize, the people are going to recognize that this is the son of God, not recognize it just once he's gone. If you, if you collect art, 
If you collect art, you know that you buy a piece of art and hopefully that art is a, you know, it's appraised at a certain price point and it will increase. But you also know that when the painter of that piece of art dies, it really increases. Now, you don't pray for that person to die. That would be horrible. But when he does, you go and get that art appraised again. Right? Oftentimes, like Van Gogh, died a pauper, now his paintings sell overwhelmingly expensively, right? Well, well what Gabriel is saying is we're not going to miss him. We're going to know that he will be, we're going to know who he is because he will be called the son of the Most High. Also, God will give him the throne of David. And this is a direct prophecy, right? This comes directly from 2 Samuel, which sounds like this. 2 Samuel 7, 12 says, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise you up. Uh, will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and will secure a royal throne forever. Right? This is, this is important. This is important because what he's doing is he's making the case for the royal lineage of Jesus. And if you remember Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, there was, Paul is, is making the argument as to Jesus's human lineage, and then he makes an argument as to his divine lineage. And so he says, like, he's from the house of David. So this is where it comes from, and that's prophecy being fulfilled right there. It says he will reign over the house of Jacob. He will reign. This is a messianic title. This is a kingly title. He will reign. It's a kingly title and a kingly calling. And, and by the way, this again is Luke contrasting John and Jesus, because what did he say about Luke? About, what did Luke say about John? He said he will have the spirit of who? Do you remember? Elijah. He said he'll have the spirit of Elijah. He'll be a prophet. But this guy, he will reign over the house of David. That, John will be a prophet. Jesus will be a king. And then he says his kingdom will never end. And this is where it gets important for us, right? Because we still live in that kingdom. It reigns over us and in us. We live in that kingdom that is almost here, that we see breakthrough most powerfully through the incarnation of Jesus when Jesus was born. We live looking into the almost, but also live in the not yet, as it is said. By the way, our first series in, um, in 2020 is called The Almost, so there's your tie-in. You're welcome. A little foreshadow for you. All right, Luke 1, Luke 1, 34. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Okay. Zechariah asked a question too, and if you remember, it did not make the angel very happy. He was like, oh Yeah. You can't speak for nine months, right? So what is different? And this was fascinating. I said that stuff last week, and I, I, I mused on the fact that maybe the angel was being a little bit petty and like threw, threw out this punishment to Zechariah because he questioned it. And someone hit me up on um, Instagram and said, hey, didn't Mary ask a question too? How come she didn't get punished? And I, that was a good question. That was a good question. I had to ponder that this week. This is what I think, okay? And, and you can take this for what it is. Apparently, there's some qualitative difference in the way the question was asked and the intention in which the question was asked. It seems that when Zechariah asked the question, he asked the question like, yeah, whatever, I don't think so. And then he asked the question. And Mary is like, how is this all going to work? And so the intent must have been just a little bit different. But the point was the same, and we'll see that in just a little bit. The point was the same, which is essentially, listen, God can do it. You need to stop worrying about it. 
But the angel does, he takes a little bit of a softer tone with Mary. He says this, listen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born, baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. That's important. And so keep your head around that because we're going to talk about that again. It's easy to get lost in the mechanics. And if you do a lot of research, you realize there's a lot of people who have spent a lot of years trying to figure out what it means for the Holy Spirit to come over you, to come upon you. We don't, I'm not worried about the mechanics of this. I'm more worried about the fact that it happened right? And this baby, holy, will be born. He'll be called son of God. This is, again, an affirmation of his royal lineage and his role, very much so. And then he continues on. He says, what's more, by the way, and I think this is his way of kind of expanding that God is already doing something. He says, what's more, your relative, Elizabeth, has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she conceived a son, and she's now in her sixth month. So apparently, um, Mary didn't know that Elizabeth was pregnant, because remember, she had gone away. Gabriel is affirming that God can do what he says he can do. And Luke 137 says it this way, and this is a text that you know and have probably quoted, but maybe you didn't know where it came from. He says this at the end of his sentence, for the Lord, for the word of God will never fail. Right? That's amazing. The way it's normally translated in other translations is for nothing is impossible for God or nothing is impossible with God. Right? So that's the phrase that you've heard. See, Gabriel is saying, and I wonder if he doesn't get tired of this, these humans who keep questioning whether or not God can do this. And that's why he talks about Elizabeth. He's like, you understand that God is already doing this because he's already given Elizabeth a child. She's in her sixth month. You're questioning how this can happen. I'm telling you, it's already happening. But we need to go back to a little point. We need to go back to a point because back in the previous text, it said that the baby will be born holy. So is there something that we can learn about the nature of Christ from this? And the nature of Christ is a pretty important theological tenet that we need to know. Right? Because if we have the wrong understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ, who he was, how he came about, we can go to some pretty strange places theologically. So we're just going to take a, a little moment here to talk about the nature of Christ. Because normally there are two ways of looking at the nature of Christ. There's certainly more, but these two predominant ways of looking at the nature of Christ. One leads you in one direction, one leads you in another direction. And just so you know, within our particular faith tradition, in the Seventh-day Adventist faith tradition, there has been contention on this idea of the nature of Christ over the years. And so really quickly, let me explain to you the two different ideas of the nature of Christ, and then I'll tell you kind of where I think we should land. Um, the two natures of Christ are, one is that Jesus is the new Adam. Obviously, Paul says this, I believe it's Romans 5, right? Paul says Jesus is the new Adam. There's the type and the anti-type, we say. Jesus was born in the same nature that Adam was born with. Right? So obviously that's a sinless nature that was being born. Adam then fails and sin is introduced into the world. And through Jesus, as Paul makes the argument, um, salvation was introduced into the world. Right? So, so they are type and anti-type. But there's another idea of the nature of Christ that Christ was born with a fallen nature. So exactly like us. And, and so he overcame sin even though he was born sinful. Now here's the, here's the problem with that particular one. You can see which way I'm leaning here. The problem with that is that people say, oh, Jesus was born exactly like us with our exact same nature. That means it's a behavioral issue. 
all I need to do is get rid of the sin that I behave with in my life. And if I can get rid of that, then I can be perfect. And then, by the way, you know what the outline part of that is? At the end, if I can just be perfect, then in the end, I don't need Jesus because I've been able to take care of my own salvation. Do you see the problem with that? And those are the two different ways that we have a tendency to look at the nature of Christ. So I think it's appropriate, and I think Paul would back this up, that Jesus was born with the same nature that Adam was, holy, when he was born. You and I are not born that way. We are born out of sin, right? And in recognizing that brokenness, as we said last week, in recognizing that brokenness, we recognize the need for the Savior. Because even if we were to live perfect lives from today on, from what time is it? It's 12.49 p.m. on the 7th of December. If we lived a perfect life from today to the day you die, and you better hope you get hit by a car as you walk out of here. That's about the only way you're going to make it. But I'm just saying, if, if you lived a perfect life from now until then, you still wouldn't be saved because you need a Savior. And that's what Jesus provides. Got it? Are we clear? Okay, I'm not going to spend any more time on that. That's enough. But, but it's been a big deal over the years. So we're, we're, we're still in it. And Mary responds to Gabriel at this point. And I love what she says. She goes, hey, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm available. I'm here. It always reminds me of Isaiah 6, 8, right? Here I am. Send me. Yeah, I'm here. I'm available. And then she says, may everything that you've said about me come true. Wow, that's amazing. And then the angel goes, got it. And he takes off. He leaves. This is her consent to be a vessel for the Savior. And this is her willingness to partner with God in this endeavor. Now, we could stop the story right here, but there's a little addendum that I think is worth us jumping into. And so we continue in Luke, looking at verse 39. It says, A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And I think one of the reasons why she did this so quickly, I mean, even Zechariah kind of waited around, finished up his job, and then went there, right? But I think the reason why Mary went as quickly as she could is because when you are called to something, you want to be around people that are called to kind of the same thing. Um, If you notice this, if you're a teacher, do you find that you hang out with a lot of teachers a lot of the time? right? If you're a pastor, you kind of find out you hang out with pastors. I think it's probably true. Physicians hang out with physicians a little bit. And I mean, we, we cross-pollinate. It's okay. But, but, but we need to be, when we are called to something, we need to be confirmed in that calling. And we also need to know that there are others who are confirmed in that calling. And see, Mary and Elizabeth had somewhat of the same calling. And so she's like, I got to go talk to Elizabeth. She's going to understand what I'm going through. So she runs over to um, the hill country, as it says and she enters into the house and she greets Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt, leaped within her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is pretty cool, I gotta say. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and it's fascinating because most texts translate it that Elizabeth gave a loud cry. But for some reason, the New Living Translation says she gave a glad cry, which is nice, isn't it? It's kind of an affirmation that she's not just in pain because this baby's jumping around, right? She gives a glad cry and exclaims to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. You're full of grace and you are carrying grace. Elizabeth calls her out, this loud cry. Because she understands that to be in the presence of God, even God in utero, is always a blessing. And then she does something interesting. She says, hey, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Now, this is a turning of the tables, right? Because in a very structured and and strict society, 
the older woman would expect that the younger woman submit to her because that's the way society works. But this time, Elizabeth is like, what? Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? She's submitting herself. And it's true, the same with John and Jesus. John is the older cousin. He would have expected submission from Jesus, but understanding who Jesus is, he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. Do you, do you catch that nuance? Untie your sandals. Sandals are sometimes hard to tie. I've seen some crazy sandals out there. Untying sandals is not hard. I don't care. How difficult your sandal is. I don't care if you wrap it up and tie it up above your knee. Untying it's not hard. And John goes, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. You see, this is, this is an ascent to the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no hierarchy. There's just Jesus and there's just us. Right? And they all, they, this is what happens when the kingdom of God shows up. And then Elizabeth continues and she says, when I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Now, we think that this is kind of a one-off experience. This is really crazy and really weird and kind of an in utero miracle, which I think it probably was. But this language, it's kind of interesting because we've seen it before. From very early rabbinical texts talking about the Exodus, they actually, as they comment, they actually say, when the children of Israel left Egypt and when they made it to the other side and as they're singing a song of freedom, the babies who were in the womb were singing as well. I don't know how anybody knows that, right? But the, but the rabbis, early rabbis said that that was happening too. So this idea that even in utero, you can be part of what God is doing is actually there. It's kind of interesting. I didn't know that before. That was new news to me. Um, and then she says this, you are blessed. And this is, this is the crux of it, right? We always have a tendency to think about the jumping, the, the baby jumping and this. This is the crux of it. What she says right here, you are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. That's the faith statement. That's what we have to take home today. Do you believe that the Lord will do what he said in your life? That's why Mary was blessed because she went, okay, let's do it. I'm available. I believe that what you say is about to happen, as incredulous as she could have been, as, as wild as the statement was that she was being asked to do, I believe that even though this seems crazy, I'm in 100%. And listen, God has promised us a lot of things. God has said he will do a lot of things in our lives. Here's a short list of it. In Exodus 14, 14, God says that he will fight for you. God will fight for you. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary and he gives power to the weak. James 1, 5, it says that he gives wisdom to us. 1 John 1, 9, he forgives our sins and he purifies us from all of our unrighteousness. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen. Joshua 1, 9, God will be with you Wherever you are and consistently he will be with you. Philippians 4.19, God will meet all your needs in Christ. Matthew 6, you don't need to worry about anything. Luke 11, seek him and he is who you will find. This is what God has promised you. So I ask the question again, do you believe that God will do what he says he will do in your life? Because if you believe that, then you're living Christmas. Then you're living incarnation. Then you're living this theology that says God is not only good, but God is complete. When he starts something in you, he finishes that same thing in you. Right? When he calls you to something, he's going to make it happen because it's not you he needs to make it happen. All he needs is you to be available and he will make it happen in you. 
This is what it means to believe in the Christmas story. This is what Mary had to make the decision as she's standing there in front of Gabriel and she has to go, you know what? I think all that's gonna happen. I think all that's real and all that's true. And I wanna see that expressed in my life, man. The statement of faith, the statement of belief that she made, that's what we take home today. Understanding that, that assenting to be used by God is also assenting to the presence of God in your life. And his presence is the ultimate present, as we say through this series. Man, these stories, they're these incredibly multidimensional expressions of who God is. We've read them from the time we were born and heard them read to us. But if we revisit them the first time and go deep into what God is trying to do through these people and what God is trying to say and how he is trying to be so present in their lives that their lives change, that's what we want. That's what I want for you today. That's what I want for me today. So as we exegete our own lives, as we look at what God is trying to do in our own life and see the way he is trying to be present in our lives and moves, realize that we've got one thing to do. We just have to be available and believe that he's going to do what he started. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your compassion towards us, all of this, your presence is what we appreciate today. So Lord, be present today. Give us that gift of your presence and may we be available, ascending to the fact that you will do what you say you are going to do in our lives. You will complete that work that you began in us a long time ago when we first met you, Lord. Lord, accept our praises, accept our worship, and accept us today. In your name I pray, amen.